This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. So today we're here with Samantha Khan from Lighthouse Coaching. And to start with, Samantha, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm based in the Boston area, but I haven't always been. Um, I started my HR career in Pennsylvania. I'm actually a graduate of the HRD program, so excited to, to be on the podcast. Um, and I spent 10 years in corporate HR, um, really refining the skills that I had talked about theoretically in, in grad school um, and have had roles from recruiting and most recently HR business partner roles um, that helped me to gain a lot of amazing skills, particularly around communication and executive coaching. And as I started to develop those skills a little bit more, I realized my passion was so much more um, ingrained in this idea of relationships, how we relate to one another, how we relate to ourselves. Um, I practiced my own coaching with a mentor and um, fell in love with it. So in 2021, I opened the doors to Lighthouse Coaching, um, which is my own practice here in um, the Boston area. And I work specifically with women in corporate who are high achievers, who have, you know, really worked hard to climb that corporate ladder, but are looking for something more in their lives. So um, that was the former version of me, someone who felt like, career would solve it all. Um, if I could just get to a certain level, a certain salary number, um, then I would be happy. And I quickly realized that that was not coming true as I was working these 60, 70 hour work weeks all around HR, which is not <laughs> life or death, which um, it's still like very rewarding work, but um, I wasn't feeling the same fulfillment. So I focused a lot in doing my own inner work and now I help other women do the same. Sounds amazing. I want to start with some basic definitions. What does well-being mean to you personally? That's a great question. I mean, it can. I think it can mean so many different things for me. And this is probably from the lens of, of the last few years of my life, really, is being able to find happiness from within, right? So um, a lot of my work personally and with clients is all around creating a life that you love with you leading first, right? So I would say finding the happiness within, being able to regulate no matter what happens outside of you, being able to self-regulate and find things that fulfill you. It's a little bit of a wordy definition, <laughs> but all of those things coming together for me, it's like this interlock of, um, you know, being able to find self-acceptance, happiness within, being able to regulate no matter what life throws at you this interlock of, of finding this happiness within with who you actually are, um, regardless of the things that you have and being able to self-regulate no matter what life throws at you, um, whether that's work stress, personal stress or anything else. So that might mean you have routines or practices that enhance your well-being, or it might mean that like you spend time alone that you go within or that you do some inner work that allows you to release some of the things that feel heavy that allow that create um, more anxiety in your life. And that dives deeper into the energetic work um, that I use in my practice as well. 
So it sounds like it's a shift from sort of those external markers of status or achievement to more focusing inward to who you are, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Is that kind of what where you're going with that idea of it, like focusing on inward and on yourself and on your own happiness? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because if you can't find it within it, you sure as heck are not going to find it without, even if it feels like you might temporarily get that dopamine hit, um, it's never long lasting. Yeah. So when we shift that definition from a person's personal well-being to at the organizational level, um, what does well-being mean in the context of an organization or in a workforce? So I would say in terms of well-being in the workforce, I think part of it is really around setting boundaries and setting goals for yourself, right? So having direction, having um, maybe a push forward and work that ties you to a greater mission, but also having the boundaries set by both the individual and the workplace to recognize that we aren't machines and there has to be some balance. I think that well-being in the workplace has come a long way from when I first even got into corporate 10 years ago. And I've recognized all kinds of programs from movement um, or health-focused physical movement programs to meditation, to volunteer days. There's so many different options. But again, I think it's it's ever-evolving too as we find out more what works and what doesn't um, and being willing to kind of experiment because I think too, what works in one organizational culture might not in another organizational culture. We've seen that too. And those are great examples. And it is sort of an issue that has trends where every organization needed to build a gym or, you know, pay for gym memberships for people. And um, not that they've gotten away from that, but they've expanded to being so many more things. How do you think some of these workplace initiatives have been received by employees? Or how has it helped? I think just going back to the last question too, it also really depends on the tone that the leadership sets around your well-being, right? Because if you build a gym and then all of your leaders give you no time to actually use it um, because there are so many priorities that there are no priorities, then what is the point? Don't build the gym, right? <laughs> like it's not, it's not being used because no one has the time to use it. Um, or if you set up these initiatives for maybe, uh, you know, six-week meditation class that nobody actually shows up to because another meeting is scheduled over it once again, then you, people are not using it. It's a waste of the company's money. And it's a waste, it, it's a frustration to the employees that they're, they're offerings, but we can't actually take advantage of them, right? So I think, again, it, it depends on the company and the amount of effort that is shown from the leadership to, to truly trust that this is worthwhile because well-being is all, or a, a lot of the costs associated with well-being are upfront overhead costs that you don't see a direct return on investment on, not right away at least. I think that's a little bit of a jaded perspective, <laughs> but um, at the same time, I think it, it's an amazing opportunity for employees to either be introduced to new concepts, whether it's it's a fitness challenge, a yoga class a new opportunity for them to do something like team building with their their organization or their direct team. Those are, are amazing investments that people, I think, genuinely appreciate. They just also need to be able to, to utilize. And 
I'll say for me and my personal journey to well-being or overall wellness, it started with physical fitness. It started with running um, and moved into yoga and meditation and really just creating a mind-body connection that allowed me to see where I was feeling more frantic and notice that in my body. And I, I think that can be really impactful, but it didn't necessarily start in the workplace, right? So bringing some of that into the workplace is amazing. It also makes it more acceptable. I think it makes it something people are more willing to talk about when they might have separated that piece of their life from their professional world a little bit more. There's a lot more to explore around what's positively impacting our employees um, and what's just sort of left. Yeah, no, I had a very similar experience too. I actually taught uh, step aerobics when I was in my 20s. So my started with that physical, um, coming at this from a physical and nutrition standpoint. And then I eventually ended up in the space of work-life balance, which mm-hmm. has more of the mental component um, and the boundaries and all those things that you talked about. So um, it definitely over your one person's lifetime, it can change to what your priorities are in terms of well-being. And certainly Mm -hmm. in organizations, we have people in all those different life stages who may be rooted in their well-being, in their physical well-being or their mental well-being or their work-life balance or or the different aspect that speaks to them at the moment. Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting somewhere along the way, we as humans decided that our, our body and our mind were two separate entities, but they're interconnected, right? So I saw this a lot, especially the first two years of the pandemic. so many people were maybe more productive, but also just really miserable because they're sitting at their desk, you know, 10 hours a day, going to these virtual meetings and um, like for eight of those hours, and then they have two hours to actually work. And it's just like, there's none of that engagement you would have gotten in an office. Um, There's none of the uh, like visibility that you might've had otherwise. Um, It's just, it it was very taxing on people, which I'm sure, um, you know, you've also reviewed in a lot of your research and probably on this podcast too. But um, yeah, seeing that I think was really hard. And the company I worked for at the time did try to put together a lot of initiatives around wellness and well-being, but there was still a, a huge gap to fill. You mentioned uh, this, like, the, the role of leadership in these efforts. How do leaders support and promote well-being in organizations or how can they? I think their personal stories, their personal experience, and the way that they behave is a huge component of that, right? I've had incredible leaders that lead by example and that they leave by six every day to go like have dinner with their family or, um, you know, they manage their schedule a little bit differently in order to be at all of their kids' soccer games. Um, I think that's an amazing example of showing people how to prioritize their well-being because you may not have the interest of having a family or you may not, you know, have the same priorities as that person, but they make time for what's important for them. And so just displaying that I think is incredibly important because I've also had incredibly smart leaders, incredibly intelligent leaders that are working 24 seven, you send them an email at 10 o'clock at night and they respond immediately. Like, and that just sets the tone for it. Well, if they're working, and that's how they got there. Like, I need to be doing the same if I want to see myself in a, in a similar position in five to 10 years, right? So. Absolutely. And and the same manager might say, I don't expect this of you. I just happen to be working 24 hours a day. But 
So it doesn't matter. (laughs) Saying it are two different things. I also come from back in the day when people, managers do have flexibility in their roles and they might go to their child's soccer game in the afternoon, but they wouldn't tell anyone. It was sort of under the radar. Um, And not telling and not telling their personal story sets that tone of, I'm pretending I'm at an offsite meeting, not attending my child's soccer game. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the role modeling is a huge piece of it. And I would also say creating an environment where these well-being initiatives can be successful too. Because the example I use, like having so many priorities that nothing is a priority and an indecisive leader that can't like knock some things off of the plate of their overall leadership team. I think can cause a lot of chaos because people are spinning their wheels constantly feeling they have to get everything done. And then the results are often not as good as if they were more focused. Um, They take longer and there's less to show for that work. And um, I've had one leader particularly like that who was amazingly charismatic, one of the best for his team, but his team really struggled trying to meet all of the demands. You know, his, his sort of motto is like, we can always do more. And that's great for one personality type. That's really motivating for one personality type. And it's also very demotivating for another, another that maybe holds that as a, a dogma that everything has to be, you know, a certain way and we're all built differently. So just finding a way to respect the needs too of, so those three pieces, I would say role model, creating that environment for people to have their own well-being, um, And then just also creating a space that allows for a variety of options of what well-being looks like because we're all built differently. I'm curious about these personal mottos that leaders have. One in the work family space that we see a lot is the, I need to see you to know that you're working kind of Mm -hmm. mantra. And uh, that doesn't allow for telework or flexibility or um, setting a schedule that's different than norm. You know, for example, if you had an employee who was training for a marathon and they wanted to take three hours in the middle of the afternoon to do their focus training for the marathon, but they worked morning and then evening. That would be perfectly acceptable for some bosses who can clearly prioritize and what work needs to be done and what are the deadlines versus a boss who's like, well, if I don't see you in the middle of the day, then you're not working or you're not getting your work done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you've come across these sort of personal philosophies that can hinder these well-being efforts of employees or help them? Yeah. I mean, first of all, that statement, if I don't see you, you're, I presume you're not working is an incredibly damaging one, right? Because it just immediately removes any assumption of trust. It's uh, guilty until until proven otherwise. And it's just incredibly demotivating for almost any employee, right? Even for people, managers that don't say that, but hold that concept in their mind. So even if they don't go as far to say it, it still can be super damaging because it's this need to control, right? A lot of people, now that they've had a taste of the flexibility working from home during a pandemic, realize they can be as productive or even more productive at home if they should choose. And having all of that taken away and in addition, a lack of trust that they can get their work done is is something that even if it's not said is felt um, a lot of times, right? Like you just assume <laughs> your your manager is you can read that they're upset or frustrated for one reason or another, and you can make it about whatever it is, but um, the, the result is often the same. It's just, just 
damaging to the trust and the relationship overall. But yes, yeah, so, so I've run across that. And it, I think what's been the most helpful is coaching for those managers to recognize the truth behind the statements. And a side note is I think all managers should practice the skill of coaching, um, whether you're a new manager or not. And we can all refresh our skills around coaching because it allows you to take a step back and stop looking at things from a single perspective being yours and see things, I think, in a more broad perspective, allow for um, your team members to come forward with new ideas and opportunities as well. So just building that that coaching skill as a new manager or tenured manager and um, allowing yourself to be open to, to new possibilities and really thinking about the outcomes versus the the how, the the what versus the how. Um, it gets done. Because if it gets done, why does it matter if you see this person in the office four days a week? At the end of the day, we all have the same goals to perform, right, as the company goal. And if you're forcing someone to sit in a two-hour commute both ways, just to get there, work for for eight hours, and then come home and still not <laughs> get all their work done, you know, how how beneficial is that really? In your coaching work, you focus a lot on helping women. Is, is well-being different for women? Are there aspects in that women in leadership have to attend to differently for well-being of themselves and their employees? I would say there's this expectation that it's it's not one is better or worse. I think that their challenges are just different, right? So I think there's this expectation for many women that they have to be able to do it all, right? To be the career woman, you know, have hobbies, to... Um, find a partner to have a family and show up to all the meetings and um, to just do all to do more than than um, might be expected of their expected of their male colleagues and that's where I I talk a lot to women about like what their vision of success is because a lot of times five of the things on that ten item list are not important to them they're just doing it because they feel they have to be doing it. So really allowing them to focus in on what brings them joy, what success, like what their desires are and what the roadmap to those desires actually are versus this vision of success that we're often sold by society. And I think that vision tends to be very similar for both men and women, particularly early on. It's go to school, get into a a good college, get a good internship, let that lead into a good job. You have your job until you're 65, um, you're saving in your 401k. And then you get to retire and then you get to actually enjoy your life, right? And I try to flip that on its head and help women see that they can actually enjoy it right now by prioritizing what's important to them instead of what they think they need to be doing. So I try to take them out of this idea of of sacrifice for the vision of success you were told you needed to have to be, quote unquote, successful. Um, and into enjoying their life now and being more in the present and getting back into their body and like tapping into their intuition, developing greater trust in themselves as well. Because I think what runs rampant for women, particularly in, in the corporate world is also imposter syndrome, feeling like, you know, and that's, it's, present in both men and women. I think more women are willing to report feeling imposter syndrome at some point in their life. And just like, they're constantly masking who they are, trying to feeling like they they are, you know, not qualified to be doing what they are, what they are, um, or in the current role. And 
feeling a lot of anxiety about it and waiting for the other shoe to drop. And someone might find out that they're not qualified and someone with and a male in the same position um, who has the same qualifications often won't report feeling that same imposter syndrome, like that added level of anxiety of just being there. Are there any misconceptions or myths about well-being at work that you'd like to debunk based on your experience with coaching, working with organizations? I think what I said earlier is just that just because you have well-being initiatives doesn't mean that you have, you know, an employee population with a higher level of well-being. It's really about like the utilization and participation of those programs and the feedback you're getting and being willing to adjust. And you don't have to follow the trend of, of what a Google or like an, another tech giant or other Fortune 500 company might be doing um, in terms of, of well-being. That doesn't, that doesn't automatically qualify you for helping your employees. I think one of the biggest mistakes that um, that employers can make is implementing things in isolation without actually talking to or addressing their employee population. Um, just saying, this is a great idea. I had a steering committee of all the leadership team and now we're going to implement this. And then it's crickets, right? Like everyone, there's this like unsaid, unspoken um, feeling around the company that this is a useless tool and I don't know how we're really going to benefit from it. So I've had that happen as well. And it's just, it's, it's, definitely, I think a damper on morale, right? Like we had this great opportunity and initiative and momentum behind helping our employees and we didn't actually listen to them. Um, so just making sure that you actually include your employee population or a sample of your employee population in understanding what would be most meaningful to them. I agree. I've seen, you know, the nursing shortage has been really bad for, for a long, long time, but the pandemic even made it worse. I've seen hospitals in implementing mindfulness training and I love mindfulness. I, I've seen the research behind it. It's very solid. Um, there's very good support for it being a great intervention. But if you're very, very understaffed and overworked, it can feel like you don't get what's going on here if you try to put that on top of long, long shifts and, and double shifts and, and not doing the proper hiring or HR intervention. So I right. definitely can see feeling more resentful towards any, an, an investment that is supposed to be helping you, but it doesn't really understand what you're going through. I'm going to flip it. And yes, this area is very trendy, but what is the next big thing in workplace well-being or well-being in general? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think this doesn't sound groundbreaking <laughs> to me, but I, I think it's, it's an important shift is more to individual well-being and opportunities for companies to, um, you know, deliver more meaningful one-to-one -one doses of, of well-being, whether that's the uprise of companies like BetterUp that are offering coaching like on an online platform for employees to um, receive, you know, information on bettering their career or their personal life, whatever it is, um, and having a one-to-one -one coach or um, more individualized sort of leadership programs too, to help people feel connected or like they're being invested in. I think that's important. And in addition, I think it's just that overall flexibility, not this one size fits all, like we'll just put this bandaid on it and hope that it works or throw this out there and, and see who bites, um, but more intentional 
um, for the employee population. So more of that, I hope that it's more of that um, listening and engagement of the employee population and providing what serves them. Bringing it back to you, what are you really passionate about in the well-being space right now? Just getting to know yourself, I think, is the huge, like the the best, um, most transformational thing that I ever did for myself. And it sounds a little bit cliche, like getting to know yourself, right? But what I mean by that is really becoming self-aware so that you um, have the ability to better manage, better regulate your own emotional state. Because I think so often, especially at work where we're there all the time, there's a lot of stressors. We can just come from this reactive place at all times, right? So rather than coming from the reactive space, when you can start to understand who you truly are and also start to accept who you truly are, there's a lot of pieces of us. Um, I study a lot of uh, shadow work. So that, that term coined by Carl Jung, um, to understand the parts of our personality that aren't always present. Um, and that's a lot of the work I, I've done as well in terms of shifting energy and helping people really understand all parts of themselves and start to bring those pieces that feel fragmented together and, and accept their whole. Um, because when we aren't doing that, that's where I think we get a lot of this reactive behavior. Um, so that's what I mean by becoming self-aware that allows us to regulate better, that allows us to understand others better, have stronger communication and better relationship management overall. So just increasing our overall emotional intelligence, I think just goes such a long way, not for um, your your professional life only, but your personal life. It's, it's just, I think, really transformational. So I, I've always been really passionate about that because again, coming from this place of career focused only, like use all of my masculine energy to just drive through and not ever considering um, what was important to me or what I might be sacrificing or what those trade-offs are. Um, Because sometimes I think we just see ourselves as this, um, you know, we are our own individual self, but we see ourselves as this collective moving towards this collective goal or collective vision. um, And we forget that like we have the ability to step back and do things our own way. You're a certified energetic breakthrough practitioner. Tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so that's kind of, that's um, the piece of my work where I I dive into the shadow work. So a lot of that is around shifting energy um, that's stuck um, with my clients, and so um, that involves somatic practices. So really, just understanding you know when an emotion comes up, where does it arise in the body, and how do we move it and also diving into their subconscious. So one of the tools that I use in my practice is shamanic journeying. And for some that might sound a little bit woo, but really all it is is using my voice to take you into kind of a a deeper state of your brainwave. So moving from um, these beta higher frequency um, brainwaves to alpha or theta. And um, as you do that, it takes you deeper into your subconscious. So you can start to access these parts of you that maybe you've locked away, quite honestly, from um, an early age, as early as zero to one years old, right? And these core memories that you're actually living and behaving by um, are letting dictate your behavior without even recognizing it. So that's the the breakthrough of, of the energy there. Um, and it's been incredibly successful. And it's one of those things that I've personally found very successful in helping to heal a lot of my own sort of 
um, tra traumatic responses, right? So um, whether that's like big T, little T trauma doesn't really matter, but it's these memories that we hold on to and that we compound on, on as we grow older. Like we look for more evidence to pull in to say like, yes, this is the way I should be leaving, leading my life or this is the way I should be responding to this scenario until we realize or, or until we can take a step back and see where maybe that response is not helping us. Um, you know, for example, getting really charged or upset by someone asking you to work a little bit later. Um, maybe that feels like a threat response of someone not, uh, you know, not respecting your time or boundaries that you learned from a young age. And the way that you then communicate to your now coworker is really ineffective. It's explosive and it's causing you to be, um, you know, brought into HR because you, you have a personality issue um, at the company or, you know, an employee relations issue at the company. Um, so find out that's not a helpful behavior and there's maybe a new way to take a step back and perceive that so that you can regulate your own emotions, you can regulate your own reactions and be more productive, more successful, more effective, um, more efficient at work. Wow, that sounds really important right now. I am out of questions, but I didn't have the opportunity to uh, say anything that I didn't ask about um, or cover something that you think is really important to this issue. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all of your questions. I think they are great and great to get me thinking too about uh, more of the, the corporate wellness space. I, I think, you know, as I grow my business, one of the things that I'm also doing more of is, is speaking in situations, uh, on these situations of how people are experiencing their, their workplace and what they can do to change it, not just at the company level, but on the individual level. So I think that, you know, just going back to, how the workplace well-being movement is is changing. I think that's another opportunity is, again, it doesn't have to be just this one-to-one, -one, but an opportunity for speakers like me, um, like you mentioned earlier, your friend who, who's a doctor and who does yoga, um, is a yoga practitioner and teacher and um, has a different perspective. Maybe it's not directly related to what the company does or the product they make or whatever it is, but having these outside perspectives that are a little bit different and allow people to think about their, um, their life holistically, not just at work, I think is so important, right? Because we talk about work, work-life balance. Many people say it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, but this, this play between work, work life, professional life and, um, prof and personal life, um, how do we make it more effective? And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, how we're managing ourselves, the boundaries that we set and the, the positions we're willing to, to put ourselves in to, um, to move forward as well. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Samantha. It's been really enlightening. And um, I love this idea of the energy work and getting to know yourself at a deeper level. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Heather. It's been great talking to you and I appreciate the chance to share more with the HRD community and beyond. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRC. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development, 
visit our website at villanovahrd.com.